What up? This is Dart Adams. This is the ninth episode of Dart Against Humanity. Today is also the 60th birthday of Prince. And on top of that, it's the 30th anniversary of EPMD's Strictly Business and Audio 2's What More Can I Say? Even though most people are going to talk about Prince today or focus on EPMD's classic album, I'm going to focus on something else entirely. As we all know, uh, if you've listened to this podcast, June 1988 is also a crucial month because it's when uh, black music pretty much is default setting switch to New Jack Swing, beginning with all the albums that came out in June 1988 going forward. But on top of that, something else happened in June 1988, which kind of affected uh, the entire video game industry and later on kicked off a new wave of video game journalism because also in June 1988 actually the anniversary the 30th anniversary will be next week uh, Nintendo released two huge uh, games uh, one of them being Metal Gear and the other one being their home port of Double Dragon now you're probably wondering what does that have to do with video game journalism and how did it change anything well Here's the thing. Back in the days, we didn't advertise games in the fashion that we do now. Back in 1987 and 1988, pretty much everything was up in the air. If you advertised for video games, you might do a 15 to 30 second commercial to air during cartoons, whether it be Saturday morning or the cartoons that came on daily, you know, like G.I. Joe, Transformers, uh, any of them joints that came on after school or even before school or, you know, based it on Saturday morning cartoons and you would put ads mostly in comic books. Because there weren't video game magazines like that back then. I mean, some existed, but for the most part, they focused on computer gaming. And they didn't focus on console gaming. And the only publications that really covered arcade games uh, did it because it fell in line with like pinball, coin-op stuff. So those were trade publications. Those weren't magazines everybody got. So the whole idea of video game journalism in 1987 and even in early 1988, it just wasn't really a thing. Like when I was a kid, I used to read a magazine called Computes Gazette, which was basically geared towards uh, basic programmers. And who used to advertise in there? Uh, People that had VIC-20s, Commodore 64s, you know, things like that. People who use computers, their, their programming language was basic. And when you use basic, you, basically what you did, basically, what you did was you would also have games in the magazine that were written in this code. And you could input them and save them. And now you have a game. So you would go into this magazine in the back and it would be like, okay, we have this game. You look at the game, you read all about it. Somebody wrote a piece about it. Nobody knew who these people were. They weren't famous. And then you go to the back and it's like, all right, here's where the code starts. The code is five pages or three to five pages of just code that you have to type in by hand, which could take hours on a computer in a time where not a lot of people had computers. 
who's going to do that? What, what kind of nerd shit is that? And on top of that, video games did not have release dates like we know them now. They had approximate times that they would come out. So you would see ads for a game and usually ads for games meant the game was already out. They didn't tell you the game was coming out. It's not like dropping on June 22nd. No, it would be an ad for a game that you either buy directly from that place, which might take you four to six weeks or six to eight weeks, depending on where they are in the world, which might never come. And you had to either send money or a check or something, which who only adults could really do that shit. COD, what? And, um... The game companies were few and far between. You had companies like Epics, which none of you remember. EA used to be Electronic Arts, you know, spread out Electronic Arts. It wasn't shortened yet. You know, you had all these like smaller companies, Broderbrund, like, and all these companies that we knew because we, of course, frequented these computer game spots. And pretty much it was a niche audience. And then you come up through like there are other publications that existed. But for the most part, very few people would buy them and nobody knew who the writers were. And they weren't they weren't like really super known amongst gamers. Of course, you had arcade, you had arcades, you would go to the arcade, you play the arcade games, you see the companies that made the arcade games, but past Okay, there's this game and this company made this, this and this game. People didn't get that deep into it. And there surely wasn't anybody writing about it. This is going into the 80s. So we get to 1988. And why did everything change? Because Nintendo, starting around 1987, they started putting out these um, newsletters. They started putting out these thin newsletters, which would have some information, some tips, and maybe, hey, um, be on the lookout for these games coming up. That's it. They're probably two, three, five pages. Usually black and white. And then later, you know, there'd be some color pictures. Where everything changed was when Nintendo put out a huge tips and tricks guide that had about 100 games included in it in late 1987, around the holiday season of 1987, which people were still getting going through 1988. It got to be a point where they, they had the idea that, hey, if people buy a bundle, a Nintendo bundle, we should have this guide put in there. So they have this big, huge coffee table book of games and tips and tricks. And it also um, advertises for upcoming games. So people got used to the idea of having something that covered gaming with them. And they sold more and more Nintendos. And eventually what that trickled down into was we need to take our tips guide and turn it into a magazine that does nothing but cater to Nintendo gamers and people who love the console. At which number the numbers grew and grew and grew. Around July, August 1988, they release the first Nintendo Power issue. And you could, of course, get your own subscription or you could have already bought it if you were part of the Nintendo Fun Club or if you had if you had a Nintendo and you paid already, which a lot of people did. But a lot of people bought the um, Nintendo Power 
after the fact or got subscriptions after the fact because it was a magazine strictly about gaming even though it was about nintendo but nintendo was the industry at the time they had completely eclipsed sega and their master system so people would read this gaming magazine which had a top 30 games which had uh tips and tricks in it which had comics in it which had game reviews in it which showed you upcoming games but one of the crucial things was it had walkthroughs and the one of the biggest walkthroughs it had was double dragon which had just come out not too long ago now the thing about uh games is just it was kind of like uh how albums come out so there's been controversy when did games drop did they drop on tuesdays or fridays or saturdays or mondays when okay i'll i'll, I'll answer this right now back in the days in the early days of gaming games didn't have release dates when they showed up at shelves as a place like babbage's or uh, electronic boutique or wherever you sold video games when they showed up they showed up you knew the month they were coming out when it got to shelves they were there you would call and ask if they had it we don't have it yet you have it do you have it yet oh it's in stock now so then you would go there was no solid release date for games like there were with uh movies VHS tapes, rentals, or they were with albums. You knew what day uh, George Michael's Faith was coming out. They advertised it everywhere. Coming out this day, there was a standee. You know, there were posters. You were supposed to get in line to buy it. You know, we knew when Princess Sign of the Times was coming out. You walked by a record store and you would see the advertisement. The as- advertisement. That didn't exist for video games until later. Even if you look in the first Nintendo Power, um, it doesn't really tell you the release date for games. You have to go back and do deep research to find out when games actually came out. Because people didn't pay attention like that. So what happens is, the reason why games came out on Tuesdays... Is because everything else came out on Tuesday in America. Albums came out on Tuesdays, unless they came out on Friday. What up, Def Jam? What up, Columbia? Or, like, albums came out the same day as movies, VHS tapes. Movies came out in the theater on Fridays. Arcade games came out on Fridays. And this is where... The confusion lies. Why? Because games came out on Fridays overseas. So they came out on Fridays, Thursday, Friday in Japan. And they also came out on Friday in the UK. So if you go online and you look up a release date and you check and you see a date, people run with it. What they don't do is they don't Google or search the release date because they don't know the difference. They don't know that that release date could have been from a european or japanese source and sometimes they don't um differentiate 
Sometimes they'll say Japan, and that's the Japan release date. You look, it's a Thursday, Friday. Or you'll see a UK release date, a European release date, and it's a Friday. But they just accept that for what it is. And a lot of times people don't go deep enough to realize that different places release different games, different times. And they also don't understand why when they look out, look for a game release, they just see a month and they don't see a date. Because they knew the ship month. The date wasn't guaranteed because it could have been packaging problems. There could have been shipping issues. The industry wasn't what it is today. Everybody didn't demand that you put out a game on a specific date until the industry switched. And I'm telling you, the industry switched in 1988 summer 1988 going into fall 1988 because it had to now another big thing was the walkthrough for metal gear metal gear actually when you bought metal gear it actually came with a huge map i think it told you what card you had to use to get into where it had a huge map of the entire uh, game and everywhere you had to go. So another reason why this happened, as people don't didn't realize it at the time, is the Metal Gear that we got is wildly different from the Metal Gear they had in Japan. Metal Gear they had in Japan came out in summer 1987. It was on a game system called the MSX. When they did the American or North American version of Metal Gear... They changed the uh, story around and they changed the game around and they changed a few elements. There are a lot of things. If you go on YouTube and look up Metal Gear 1987 from MSX and check the differences, you'll be like, what? So it was almost a complete. It's almost a, a new game. So they had to put in this guide or stuff with it and have these walkthroughs with it for the American audience. Because anybody who's Japanese and gets the American version is going to be lost. Like, what the hell is this? And in America, we didn't understand that. And also, there were a lot of people that were scared that American audiences weren't going to be down with the complexity and all the stuff you had to do with that game. Whereas the Japanese audience, gaming audience, they were used to it. So they felt like they had to baby you, baby us along and bring us along. What ended up happening is Metal Gear ends up becoming one of the most influential games of all time. The American version. The Japanese version would have been too much for us. So those two games, especially um, Double Dragon, I felt like they covered it because it was so different from the arcade version that they kind of had. I feel like they ha- kind of had to sell it on us. The graphics were trash in comparison to the arcade version. You couldn't play with two-player. So what they did was they switched shit up and they were like, all right, you get to earn different moves when you get more hearts. And then they put in that fucking two-player mode. Like, they tried so hard. But, I mean, the audience accepted it because what are they going to do? They're kids. And it was Nintendo. Nintendo had this, like, Debo. They could just pretty much tell us anything and give us anything. I mean, look at how many people bought the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game from Ultra. That game looked like trash. But hey, we accepted it. Forget the arcade. You look at the arcade game and you look at the Nintendo version at your your house. And you were just like, what? But whatever, man. Whatever, man. But yeah, um, the entire video gaming industry changed 
after Nintendo Power came out. And what ended up happening is everyone saw the power of journalism in terms of games and how much it was needed, how much it was necessary, and how big the audience was as far as buyers, readers, what have you. And also, you have to realize that the console gaming industry was going to explode. Seiko was going to come out with a new system. Everybody else was going to jump into the fray. Then, of course, arcades were big business. They were blowing up. If you look at what was, what was coming out in the arcade in 1988 and what had already dropped in 1987, and all of these games are going to have to go somewhere to come out. So it was the perfect wave and the perfect time to get in and start doing journalism or having publications that cater to this audience, this um, growing audience. And if you look, it's a parallel to what happened with, with rap music. There was a time in the early to mid-80s where you had a chosen few writers that covered hip-hop and rap and actually knew what they were talking about enough to write it well, well about it in big publications. But for the most part, it was rock critics who didn't know what the fuck they were talking about writing about rap. And a lot of times it skewed kind of racist or they were dismissive of the entire art form slash genre. And they didn't understand it. So a lot of things, references went over their heads. So what happens is the golden era of rap happens between 1986 and 1989. And towards the end of that golden era going into 1988, 1989, people start realizing somebody is going to need to make a magazine or publication that focuses solely on rap and everything surrounding it. So, you know, there were magazines like the Hip Hop List, which existed. Um, there was The Source that came out in Boston, of course. You know, then when The Source moved to New York, start at the top of um, 1990, that's when it exploded. And then, of course, later we had um, Rap Pages and, you know, then the floodgates opened. But a similar thing happened with video game journalism. But the catalyst was summer 1988. If you look at summer 1988, I mean, you had games like Metal Gear, Double Dragon, Bases Loaded dropped. You had like Legendary Wings, Life Force dropped from Konami. You know, there were just and then there were the games that came out before that just now people were advertising about. It took a while before you actually advertised something that came out. The market was not the same as it is today. Like, I went back and I looked at old uh, issues of G.I. Joe, and they didn't advertise really for one game. When I was a kid, old video game, I mean, old comic books, and anybody could look at this from the early 80s, if a game came out for Parker Brothers or, or by Activision... Or for ColecoVision or M Network, Frogger, Pitfall, it would be an ad for one game that came out on the um, Atari or the ColecoVision or the 2600, you know? But Nintendo used to do ads 
for a, a game company, Konami would put out an ad for multiple games. Know what I'm saying? Capcom would put out an ad with multiple games in it. And you look at the bottom and you would see like the licensing dates. There wasn't like an ad. Legend of Zelda. By Nintendo. Go get it. It would be multiple games. You can get Legend of Zelda. You can get ice hockey. You can get this, this, this. So the entire industry was just different. It's really interesting when you look back at it. Electronic Gaming Monthly didn't come until later. Um, you had Tips and Tricks, magazines like that, which catered to multiple um, game systems, which was they had Nintendo, they had everything else. Everybody started with Nintendo because, of course, that was the spot. I mean, there was a magazine called Computer and Video Games Magazine, but like it started back in 1981, and again, it catered to the computer gaming audience. Like, people that played Ultima. What the fuck is Ultima? You know, like, you had to play computer games. And I feel like the audience of the adults that really play computer games and the audience of people that played console games later who also were people that played arcade games. And something we have to keep in mind. Not all of these audiences, like, if you look at the Venn diagram... Not all these audiences really intersected like that. I've written about... So now it's called the uh, Fighting Game Community, FGC. So I've written at length about the earliest inceptions of the fighting game community. The fighting game community really was born beginning out of the arcade. There were games that came out in 1987. They bridged into 1988. And then every, okay, so every, usually generations take 20 years in life, in real life. However, micro generations happen in music and gaming and culture every three to five years. Why is that? Because we have different demographics for a reason. There's nine to 13 is a demographic, four to 18 is a demographic, and then you have 21 to 25, 26 to 30. These demographics exist for a reason because life changes in between these spans, between these times. So every three to five years, there's a new wave of people that just came in and there's a new wave of people that are just getting out. And then there's the in-betweens. So every three to five years, something happens. Just like if you're online, there's a new wave of kids and people that come in every three to five years who have no idea about what happened before them. None. And then there's a whole wave of people that know and just got offline because life is just different. And things have changed. So, uh, for that fact alone, the video game and fighting game community were affected. So... When you look at 1987, 1988, you look at all the games that came out, you have games like, you know, Double Dragon, Shinobi, um, Vigilante, like all these games that people look at now, uh, Street Fighter, the first Street Fighter, that people look at like, okay, this was, and the thing is that 
the fighting game community early on, or people who frequented these games, didn't click together like they did years later when the world had changed. So when Street Fighter 2 comes out, everything is different. And this generation of kids is ready. And one of the reasons is because of the explosion of console gaming and new systems. We have to remember, again, I was telling you, in 1987 and 1988, we didn't have anything to read. We didn't have anything to bond people together. We didn't have anything to really galvanize the community. When I was at my lunch table reading Nintendo Power with all these other people and pulling out that big fucking poster with all the games on it, this is what started everything. It was something to rally people around. It was something for them to all uh, congregate around. The same way back in the days when we used to read comic books. Cash used to have the X-Men, the New Mutants, whatever. The fucking Avengers, uh, New Teen Titans. And everybody would just like gravitate to their favorite character. Or talk about the things that they liked about different books. Or argue about which books were better. What graphic novels were better. In sports, it's the same thing. You have your favorite team. You have your favorite players. You have the rivalries, which breed people, that make people, you know, really galvanizes people and gets people united and excited about the games. There's, you always need something. You need a rivalry. You need something to be around to, to, to bring in people and, ex- and excite the, um, the fan bases. And skating, it was Christian Hasoy versus um versus Bones, you know? And it was like a difference in styles and disciplines. And it's what made everybody really, you know, rally around one or the other. Nintendo versus Sega was a big touch tone. It was a key thing. Then later, more people entered the fray. And Catch used to bang like it was Crips and Bloods over video games and gaming systems. And I look at it now and I laugh because nobody fucking cares. Everybody has every system. Like, you go into somebody's house. They have like five gaming systems. Retro ones. When back in the days, if you had a Nintendo, you didn't have a Nintendo and a Sega. And if you got a Sega, if you got a Genesis, if you already had an NES, people looked at you like you were a goddamn, like, like you, you were a snitch. Like you crossed over. Like you really like, et tu brute. Like you stabbed Nintendo in the back by getting a Genesis. How dare you? Sega does what Nintendo don't, bitch. But later on, man, nobody cared. I remember when we got a TurboGrafx-16. We got a TurboGrafx-16, and people looked at us like we were, like, the biggest assholes. They would come over and play games like, yo, this is kind of dope. Du-du-du-du. But the Super Nintendo's out. You know what I'm saying? You got a Genesis... And that, and then when we got a Super Nintendo, it was like, wait, so you got a TurboGrafx-16, 
a Super Nintendo, and you got a Genesis over there collecting dust, y'all some assholes. And another thing I need to like point out to people, a lot of y'all like, wait, how you have all them systems? What, were you rich? No. Let me explain. Again, I've, I've told everybody before, I at one point was the youngest. My big sister is eight years older than me. My big brother is six years older than me. Then I had a younger brother. I lived in a household where my mom had a job. My big brother had a job. Then he moved out. My big sister lived with us. She had a job. She had already graduated from college, so she had a nice job. So there was a point where I lived in a household where we had three to four incomes. And an apartment on rent control. In the 80s and early 90s. So... There were certain things that we had, but it was still, we still had a existence where it was like, we ain't rich, but there were certain things that we could do that were doable. Gaming systems and shit like that. Sure. We had, but we were still stealing clothes and other stuff. We weren't rich, but we were rich on love. Anyway, motherfuckers. Um, so the thing about the gaming and the fighting game community was they rallied around certain games, especially going into like 91, 92, 93. So the fighting game community as it existed in its first iteration between 87, and 88 going into 1989 is completely different than the fighting game community that exploded from 91 into 92, then 93, 94 on. Okay. And it was, had a lot to do with consoles and the community uh, galvanizing around these games and the culture growing and growing. And one of the biggest things that it had to deal with was competitions, tournaments. This is where everything really, really exploded. Cats used to play. Now, you really, yes, people used to compete in the arcade against each other in Street Fighter. But Street Fighter was so non-responsive that it wasn't really something that we wanted to do later. Sure, people used to challenge each other in Double Dragon, but not the same. Just not the same. Street Fighter 2 was perfect for this thing to explode. Then later on, you had games like Mortal Kombat that really let you do the same thing. And then, you know, it was the, the floodgates opened from there. You know, Killer Instinct. It's a wrap. World Heroes. Tekken. All these different games. Um, Virtual Fighter. All these different games just really changed. It just took everything a step further and further and further. I'm not going to say Battle Arena Toshinden because that's going to be too nerdy. Um, but all these games took everything a bit higher. And as the years passed, the magazines and the publications that covered them became more and more of a focus. And they, because the audience became older. When you're catering to a younger audience, which you're writing, it changes everything. Because when your audience grows from between 14 to 18, and now you have... 
18 to 21 year olds and maybe 20, 21 to 25 year olds amongst your audience that you're writing for and the readers and the writers are, the, are closer to the same age, it changes things. So the tone of the of the articles changes, the tones of the tone of the magazine changes, the writing style changes, the quality of the writing and the complexity of the writing changes because you treat the audience different. When you read old issues of Nintendo Power, it's clear they're writing two kids and four kids. If you go and you read a game pro from 1993-94. They're not technically writing to kids. They're kind of writing to young adults and teenagers. Then when you go along further, like you get to like 1997 when people are covering uh, consoles like the PlayStation. It's clear they're not writing for kids anymore. That changes a lot. And also you have to remember that when we get to this era, the arcades are pretty much died or dying out. The arcade... To console, the console to arcade thing is crucial because what's your entry point? Some people's entry point was computer gaming. If you're a computer gamer, the nature of computer games is you're really using the keyboard more. You're playing different kinds of games, a lot of puzzle and strategy games, a lot of things that may or may not cater to action adventure puzzle type games there's a lot of uh word games involved like zork and shit like that if you're a computer gamer you're playing like shit like pools of radiance D. &D. you're playing archon google this shit if you don't know what i'm talking about but temple of asphi so that's your entry point maybe you play some arcade games you know Maybe you play like fucking Asteroid or stuff like that. There are computer gamers who appreciated a game like Metroid for Nintendo. Who appreciated a game like Leg uh, Legend of Zelda. But if they had the console, they only played games like that for the most part. And if they went to the arcade, they wanted to play games like the ones they used to play back in the early 80s. Now, if you're an arcade gamer, I feel like you're a little more open-minded to action-adventure stuff and fighting games. I don't believe that there were too many people that were their entryway was computer gaming who were clamoring for fighting games or catered to fighting or, 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 or gravitated to fighting games. And I don't think the fighting game community was full of people that were their entry point was that. I think the fighting game community was at first a lot of people who were arcade, hardcore arcade folks. And the people that they would compete with were hardcore arcade folks. Uh, my arcade, my local arcade was a place called um, Teddy Bear Arcade. Teddy Bear had a guy who was famous there, the dude named Owen. Owen was the only motherfucker Teddy Bear who had a stool. Anybody who frequented an arcade understands the level of skill, the level of dominant, the, the sheer amount of dominance, and the name recognition you would need to command a goddamn stool in an arcade. Owen had a stool. 
It was Owen's store. The store. Anybody who went to Teddy Bear Arcade, I need you to, like, if you follow me on Twitter, at Dart underscore Adams, or Instagram, yo, send me stories of your times at Teddy Bear Arcade and tell me your stories about Owen. I got a lot of stories about Owen and motherfuckers challenging him. And there was a lot of violence that almost broke out Teddy Bear Arcade, too. A lot of people get mad when you beat them, and they were used to not losing. There was about there were about five cats that would really be about to stab you or fuck you up if you beat them in a game because they were so un, they were so not used to losing and the only person they usually lost to was Owen. That's neither here nor there. But they that community they were built around going to the arcade, so they were open to games of that nature. Now the arcade community, a lot of them ended up getting home consoles because maybe they wanted to play home ports of the games. Maybe they just enjoyed the idea of me playing a game at home and then going to the arcade where I can really challenge myself because not everybody who was an arcade uh, arcade person felt like you could get a real challenge playing somebody at the home console. They felt the arcade was the real challenge. Now, later on, what happened is there were a bunch of kids that were introduced to a game at home. The home port of Street Fighter 2 and the Champion Edition actually had a weird effect because it had kids who were nice at home playing on the Super Nintendo or what have you that would go to the arcade and enter tournaments. Now, I don't know if y'all know this, but playing in the arcade versus holding sticks at home different animal this is where the arcade stick came in why because the arcade stick served a dual purpose if you were somebody who was used to playing in the arcade it gave you the same feel when you played at home however if you were somebody who played using the sticks of the controller at home and you had to go to the arcade to challenge somebody you got accustomed to playing in an arcade setting if you had the arcade stick this is why it was such a brilliant idea and a brilliant interest, int, introduction. And it became known later as the fight pad. When things like the SNK Neo Geo were introduced, which was a system which was... A lot of people tell me they never saw a Neo Geo except for in the magazine. Or they never, or they used to see the price, the prices in those um ads in different magazines, and they probably saw a Neo Geo once or twice in an arcade in their lives. I grew up in the South End, Lower Roxbury, Boston, which was the bottom bitch of the drug industry during the crack era in Boston. Not only that, but I had super rich neighbors and drug dealer neighbors. They both had. Neo Geo's when uh, Neo Geo was introduced at the local arcade Teddy Bear there were two arcades in Boston that we actually used to frequent um, there was Teddy Bear which was by the Park Plaza area uh, across the street from what used to be the Saks 57 um, right near where I live near Chinatown near the South End Lower Roxbury in between South End Lower Roxbury and Chinatown so all of everybody used to get everybody used to go there 
and it's near the, uh, the combat zone. So everybody should be there. And also near the combat zone and near Chinatown, but located in downtown Crossing, was what was the Family Arcade, which sometimes people erroneously called the Penny Arcade. Now, people started going to the Family slash Penny Arcade more when Teddy Bear started winding down. There was a fire at Teddy Bear Arcade that ended it. Um, now it's a fucking Fleming Steakhouse. But, the thing is, that cats used to go there in mass. And if you had a Neo Geo at home, you would take your card or whatever, and you would just plug it into the arcade joint. Or you had free range to do whatever you wanted at the arcade because you had one at home, which is unprecedented because nobody had a fucking Neo Geo. Neo Geos cost what, like either $649 or $699 back in the 90s, which the early 90s, which would have been probably somewhere around $1,000 USD now. With inflation. Games ran anywhere from. Like. Anywhere between I think 159. To 229 or some stupid shit. Because there were some games that was just flooding the market. That you could get at Chinatown. Or you could get certain places. And then there were some games that were a chore to get. And they were bigger because the cartridges had. They were this meg cartridge. So the, 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 the price ranged on cartridges. The controllers cost the grip. So if you had two controllers, you had multiple games and the system, and there were different systems that you could get. There was one that came with two controllers. Um, there was one that came with two controllers in the game. As the life of the console went on, they started making better package deals. But yeah, not a lot of people had it. But again, in my neighborhood, a lot of people, I saw quite a few Neo Geos. And played a lot of Neo Geos in different people's apartments and in their cribs growing up. And I didn't find out until I went to college, Morgan State, uh, 96, that that was weird or that was not normal. I was like, really? Yeah, economics is a bitch. But, again, June 1988. Trade West releases their home port of Double Dragon for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Konami slash Ultra releases their North American version of Metal Gear for Nintendo. Both these games only advertised in like video game magazines. Not even video game magazines, they didn't exist. So in like comic books. And other publications of that matter. With a fringe audience. If you can tell me. About seeing a Metal Gear ad on television. Please. Point out a Metal Gear ad. That aired on television. Find it on YouTube. Send a motherfucking link to me. I don't remember seeing one. I did remember, I think I saw a Double Dragon ad, but it was like, 
infrequent and I don't know if I had screenshots of the home arcade game. I'm pretty sure the only time I saw screenshots of the home arcade game was in a Nintendo Power. So all you needed was a Nintendo Power, which started coming out July, August in 1988. And by the time the school year started, the 1988-89 school year started, Nintendo Powers were everywhere. And when, mag and when everybody else saw the power of those magazines and their spread and their appeal and how they were advertising to a whole new market and gaining all new eyes, they said, okay, we need to start publishing video game publications and cater to this audience and cover arcade games, cover home console gaming, and maybe start reviewing and talking about games in Japan before they come over. That's how it all started. So I just saw that I'm hitting 45 minutes. I could go on and on about this, but I don't really want to. Plus, I got shit to do. Whatever, fam.